So, Lord, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, you would guide us into understanding. As we're in the second letter of John this morning, this is our 12th lesson in the spring quarter, entitled Walking in the Truth, and uh, help us to walk in the truth in our personal lives, each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, so our first section, section A, is called Greetings to the Chosen Lady. And, again, the, the whole book is 13 verses long, so it's a short one. So can I get somebody to read verses 1 through 3 of Second John? Verses 1 through 3. Okay, so that's a little tidbit. So the elder, John, it seems, is uh, reticent to put his name in his books. He, he wrote five, the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, and then these three short letters, and uh, he only puts his name in Revelation. The, the others, you have to figure out who wrote it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it was humility. So he says, the elder, and at the time this was written, so it's thought to be uh, later, you know, although it is not uh, nailed down. Some commentators say 63 AD. The 63 AD would be when the false teachers left just before the destruction of Jerusalem and uh, then the what I favor is later, which is around 85 to 90, um, around the time of the Gospel of John. John was written, probably after the Gospel of John was written. But anyway, the church tradition is that Second John was written indeed by John the Apostle. And then it says, the elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also also, but also but all who know the truth. And so the, the greater question is, who is this chosen lady? And the quarterly takes a, the stance that the chosen lady is a church. Um, and I think that the, the message from here, it doesn't really matter if you, say it's a church or if you say it's a person, but I believe in the literal, grammatical, historical, contextual method of interpretation of Scripture from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation. And for that reason, I would prefer to see this as a woman with children who is saved, chosen lady and her children. Why do I say that? Because allegorization has been a cancer on the church since the time of Augustine. And they spiritualize things, and they say they mean things that they don't say, and it's been going on forever. And our church does not do that. We take the, the God's word, 
as his word, and it's understandable. And, you know, the Bible itself does use allegorization. It does use spiritualization, but there's always a clue in the text. Okay, so I'm going to give you some examples of this. So Revelation 11, verse 8, these are examples where the Bible will give you a clue that it is not literal speech. So Revelation 11, verse 8, this is about the two witnesses. The two witnesses prophesy for three and a half years, and they're killed by the Antichrist. It says, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Okay, so there's a clue there in the text that this is not literal. The great city mystically called. So mystically, that's a clue. This is figurative. Called Sodom. What does Sodom speak of? Depravity. And Egypt, what does Egypt speak of? It speaks of bondage where also their Lord is crucified. That's clearly Jerusalem. Okay, so this is a figure of speech, and at the time of the tribulation period, the city of Jerusalem will be full of depravity, and it will be full of legalistic bondage because of rabbinic Judaism. Okay, they will not believe in their Messiah, but they'll believe in all of these rules that put them in bondage. So that's one place where the Bible itself uses figurative speech. Another place where it uses figurative speech is Revelation 12, verse 1. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Well, what is a sign? A sign is a figure. It means that this is a figure of speech. This is a metaphor. And so there's a clue in the text. And to get the meaning of this minute, metaphor, you have to go back to Joseph's dream in Genesis 37, where Joseph dreamed that the sun, the moon, and the stars all bowed down to him. Okay, that's a picture of the nation of Israel. And so that is how you know that this sign, woman, the sun, the moon, and her feet, crown of 12 stars, is Israel. There is another place, Galatians 4, 22 through 24, where Paul says specifically that he is speaking of an allegory. Okay, so Galatians 4, 22 through 24, it says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, she is her mother. So here Paul is saying, he's using Hagar and Sarah as an allegory for the Mosaic and the New Covenants. Okay, so the Bible does use figurative speech and figures of speech, but it will give you a clue. 
Okay? And I said all that to say that there is no clue here. And it says, the elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. So I believe that this is written to an individual who is unnamed, who has children, and she's a believer. And if I'm wrong, the Lord will tell me when we get there. <laughs> but I think, you know, as far as the message goes, the message would be the same. But this, but I, I flinch back from allegory. I don't like it because of, it's done so much damage to the church. And, you know, it made people not believe the Bible. So anyway, and, you know, there are books who are written to individuals. The book of Philemon is written to an individual named Philemon. And the book of, books of Timothy are written to an individual. So it can be written to individuals. So the lady is chosen. What does chosen mean? Called out. Yeah. So are you chosen? Indeed. Yes. Yes, we are chosen. You don't have to shy away from it. We are chosen. Isn't that great to say that? Yeah. So, yeah, we are chosen. So John fifteen sixteen, Jesus speaking. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. In John 6, verse 44, he talks about being chosen. No one can come to me, this is Jesus speaking again, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So these two passages are speaking of God's sovereignty in election, chosen by God. Now, let's look at John 3.16. I don't need to go there. We have that memorized. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes on him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. So this is man's choice, this verse. Revelation 22, 17. Yeah, so the end of the very end of the Bible, it says, The Spirit and the Bride, that's the church, say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. So that's human choice. Okay. So, and then here's Second Peter 3, verse 9. This is a fascinating topic. That's why I go into it all the time. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Okay, so that indicates human choice, doesn't it? Because the Bible clearly teaches that not all will come to repentance, but God desires all to come to repentance. I have rattled my brain about this for years and years. So some, you know, are we saved by God's sovereign choice or are we saved by our own choice? 
And the Bible teaches that the answer is yes. It's both. It teaches both things. Yeah. And I think this is, I've, I've been reading on this more, and I've come to the conclusion that there's mystery in it, no question. But there's one verse here. This is Romans 8, 29. Well, let's start at 28. 8, 28, that's a nice verse. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, foreknew. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So, you know, I've seen... Now, what does foreknow mean? Foreknow. You know beforehand. It's prescience, you know, or seeing into the future. Can God do that? He's omniscient. Yeah. Yeah, God is omniscient. Now, what Calvinists would say, and this is where the confusion comes in, Cal and I've seen, I've seen this, and I've seen this recently in a book Arnold Fruchtenbaum wrote. He said, foreknow means foreordain. Now, does foreknow mean foreordain? If you look at those two words in the dictionary, foreknow and foreordain, what does foreordain mean? Foreordain means he caused it, doesn't it? For foreknow has nothing to do with that. See, and they try to put those things together so that everything that happens is God's will. And that makes and that tends to make God the author of sin, if you do that. It doesn't say, I mean, because I, I go back and, and I've read that before and I just I said, okay, you know, they know more than me, but foreknow means he knows. And so since he knows, he will he will do these other things, arrange these other things so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ because he made us in his image. Is it that image includes volition and includes choice. That is why he wishes for all to come to repentance, but not all will come. So anyway, that's why the Bible teaches that God is sovereign in election and that we have free will. And I think it hinges on this foreknowledge. But it's a, it's a mind-bending concept. It's a mind-bending doctrine. That's why I like to talk about it. <laughs> the word foreknowledge does not mean foreordained. It means he knows. It does not mean he caused. It does not mean he caused. You know, we cannot be saved without the Holy Spirit's conviction. The Holy Spirit is in the world convicting the world, the unbelieving world, of sin because they don't believe in Jesus. So, but anyway, this lady is chosen because she has believed. That's how you know they're chosen. You know, it's like when you, a man offers a proposal of marriage to a girl the marriage will not go forward unless the girl agrees. I think it's like that with God and us, you know. You have to agree to the marriage because that's what's happening, right? With Jesus, we are marrying him. <laughs> so, and then 
verse 3, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. So grace, we know, is unmerited favor, right? Mercy, what's mercy? Withholding judgment that is deserved. And when that, when you have grace and mercy, what do you get? You get peace. That's an inner serenity. That is a calm, right? You know that you, you don't have to live in terror anymore. And so from the Father in truth and love. So that's, I really worked over those three verses. Anything else about those three verses? So he's writing to a chosen lady and her children who he loves. Okay, so the second section is admonitions to love and obey, verses 4 through 6. I'll read that. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Okay, so John was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth. Not all of your children, some of your children. How does it feel when your own children walk in truth? It feels wonderful. We like to see signs that they're walking in truth because God does not have grandchildren. He has children, and so we pray for our children that they're good children <laughs> of God. And we like to see them walk in truth, and sometimes we're disappointed. And we cannot be their will for them, which is tough to learn, you know. When they're babies, you just tell them what to do. But as they grow... You know, they become their own person. But it does give you joy when you see them walking in truth. And it is also how your children's lives are blessed, which is what we want for them. We want our children's lives to be blessed. So how can we help our children grow? What are some things we can do? Yeah, you know, probably the first thing we can do for our children is to model it for them. You know, be a disciple ourselves. Be serious about it ourselves so they can see what that looks like. Try not to be legalistic, which is a turnoff for everybody. Um, not just kids, but everybody. Um, so don't make up rules to follow, but just be biblical. And teach them. You know, the Bible tells us it's the responsibility of the parents to teach them constantly as they're growing up the Word of God and pray for them. And when they're old, older, it's mainly praying for them. You know, and prayer is powerful. So, so verse 5, John again talking about love. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. 
So the expression of genuine love toward one another is the command here. And verse 6 tells us how to carry it out. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. So when we are obedient to the Lord's commandments, that is the expression of love. The Lord tells us how to interact with other people. And uh, he also tells us how to interact with him. And if we obey those commands, that is loving. You know, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, I think it was 4 through 7, gave us the definition of love. It's kind of character qualities, you know, patience, kindness, um, not taking offense, refusing to take offense if injured, you know, being very willing to forgive, that sort of thing. But the Lord gives us many, many specific commands in the epistles. If you get angry, don't go to bed angry, you know. Work tells you to work. He tells you to give. He tells you to meet together for fellowship, go to church. Um, he tells you to pray all the time. So there are many, many commands, which we could never do without the Holy Spirit. So we do it just as we follow the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to obey his commands. And that's why he says somewhere his, com his commands are not burdensome. To an unbeliever, they would be crushing because they don't have the power to do it. They don't have the desire to do it. So it would be just crushing to try to walk the walk of discipleship as an unbeliever. That's why lordship salvation is so dangerous, you know. So you must make Christ your Lord and you're telling this to an unbeliever and they're like, you know, <laughs> recoiling against that. Um it's the power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to do it and also gives us the will to do it. We realize that, you know, God loves us. We love him. And the way to show that love is to obey. And we'll get a benefit of blessing from it. So that song, Trust and Obey, is extremely biblical. The trust is your salvation. The obey is your discipleship. My ex-wife, I told her that. This was after we were divorced. I love this song, Trust and Obey. She says, oh, I don't like the obey. <laughs> I don't like the obey part. <laughs> and that's how, that's how the natural man is. You know, you want to do your own thing. You think you're doing your own thing. You're in, you're in Satan's camp when you're doing that. Anything else in that little tiny section? Section C, warnings against the deceivers, which is verses 7 through 13. Should I read that one? I'll read that one. We've heard this before. Verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. 
If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house, and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face, so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. Okay, so <clears throat> remember in First John, he was also writing about these deceivers, these false teachers, these antichrists who denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. Jesus taught about this also. And uh, that is in Matthew 13. Matthew 13 comes right after Matthew 12. Matthew 12, the nation and the leaders of the nation had formally rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They committed the unforgivable sin um, of rejecting the Messiah. And it was after that that he began to teach these mystery kingdom parables. Okay? And so this these and this is about the inter-advent age, chapter 13 of Matthew. So it includes the church age, but also into the tribulation period. And um, he told a parable about the wheat and the tares. Remember? The wheat and the tares. So and then this is Matthew 13, 36 through 40, which is the tares explained. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Satan goes to church and he plants his followers in the church. And those are the tares. Okay? And they're the false teachers. They're the false teachers in the church. And the church today is full of them. Full of false teachers. And that is why the, the Bible is extremely important to us because that's how we test teachings. Um, you know, for example, the prosperity gospel, that's a false teaching. Um, the emergent church, you know, they teach that you can't know anything. You can't know anything. <laughs> well, that's a false teaching. Rob Bell, who I mentioned before, wrote a whole book, Denying Hell. That's false teaching, you know. Um, now, I think that there are some justified believers that can be caught up into false teaching. I think maybe, you know, we have people here 
who have family members in that category. But um, false teachers can be planted by the devil, and they're unbeliever, unbelievers, and they're trying to tear down the church. And we need to vigorously contend with them. So verse 8, watch yourselves. He says this right after talking about the deceivers. So watch yourselves, because if you're caught up with the deceivers, they can be very alluring, especially this prosperity gospel, like, you know, because that goes along with our flesh, you know, materialism. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. So it is God's will for us to be fully rewarded. Okay? And that's what this little chart is that I handed out to you. There are five crowns. These are our rewards. And remember, we gain heaven just by belief in Jesus with nothing else. The thief on the cross gained heaven. He had no works because he was in the process of dying when he believed. So, but for leading a disciplined life, for overcoming the flesh, you know, for basically obeying the Lord's commands, we gain the imperishable crown for evangelism, and we gain the crown of rejoicing for loving the Lord's appearing. So if we just pray, you know, I, we have friends from Olympia who I know are believers, and I told them, I can't wait for the Lord's return. He says, I'm, I'm, I have to do other things here first. <laughs> you know? And so people, they're, if you're not w looking for the Lord's appearing, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a sign that you're a little too worldly. You're a little too attached to the things of the world, you know? But we get a reward just for longing for His appearing, for enduring trials without blaming God and trusting God through them, we gain the crown of life, and then for shepherding God's flock faithfully. So that is, it's not just pastoring, it's not just being elder in a church, it's, you know, teaching people from God's Word and things like that, you know, parenting even, is, I would consider that. Shepherding God's flock faithfully, that you're rewarded for that. And if you get caught up in false teaching, you can lose your reward. Your uh, eternity cannot be lost, but your rewards can. And we don't want to lose our rewards. I don't want to lose my rewards. So we want to stand firm. And Jesus did say something about this, about what happens when you lose your rewards. This is also back in the John 15 passage. This is the passage where he said, Abide in the vine. And uh, John 15, 5 and 6, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. So when we're attached, when we just submit to the Lord and we follow his commands, we don't do anything our, on our own. We just say, he tells us what to do. We say, okay. We do not want to be original. Jesus was not original. He was not creative. He did what the Father told him to do. His teaching was from the Father. We want to be the same. We don't want to come up with our own thing. So anyway, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch 
and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Okay. Now, in order to have you know have that harmonized with the rest of Scripture, that has to be the reward. So your witness dries up, your usefulness dries up for the Lord, and all of your re rewards, all of your works, are burned. And that is First Corinthians. 11 through 15. That's how that correlates. But it says, it sounds very scary, doesn't it? Then from Hebrews 6, 7 and 8, this is about those who have been saved and have fallen away. And that's what happens when, you know, we have the mother of one of our members here who is involved in the Jehovah's Witnesses. After she was a biblical Christian for years, she has fallen away. That's a bad place to be. So Hebrews 6, verses 7 and 8, For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. That's the person abiding in the vine. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Okay, that's again, that's what James was teaching. Faith without works, or faith with false works, is dead, useless, unuseful to God. And the works will be burned at the Bema seat judgment. So verse 9, anyone who goes too far, okay, what does that mean? You go too far and does not abide in the teaching. Yeah, you're making stuff up on your own, right? You go too far. Um, Make assumptions based not on, on, the, on what the scripture says. Yes, yes. Um, and that this idea of annihilation, you know, which is another way to get away from the concept of hell. I understand why people want to do it, because the concept of hell is horrid. But you, but God's Word says it exists, and uh, so you you can't do it. You know, You're, you go too far. Or Rob Bell, who says there is no hell. That's going too far. We do not want to be original. We want to be biblical. And um, so if you go too far... You do not have God, the one who abides in the teaching. He has both the Father and the Son. So we want to be very adherent to the teaching. Those who bring aberrant teaching are being used by Satan, if, even if they are blood-bought believers, even if they have believed and now they have just gone off on a rabbit trail. You know, I wonder about John Stott. You ever hear about John Stott? I forget what denomination he was from, but he was very biblical, and he wrote a book on basic Christianity. It was excellent. It was much like C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity. And he went into this annihilationism at the end of his life, you know. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure he's a saved person. He's passed away now. But, you know, he lost some rewards there. And he's being used by Satan when he promoted that, because he was a very prominent church leader. So, uh, 
Verses 10 and 11 are instructions for us, for false teachers, how we are to interact with them. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, biblical teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. We don't have to be nice to everyone. Okay? False teachers we resist. So do not promote false teaching, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So whenever you're around Mormonism or things like that, or the promotion of Mormon doctrine, you need to be resistant. You don't go along. You say, no, that's not right. I'm sorry, that's not what the Bible says. You know, and they will be, they, people think you're unfriendly. No, you're trying to help them. <laughs> so, um, you do not promote false teaching. So, if you do not feel confident in promoting, you know, if you feel, because these false teachers like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, they're very skilled in twisting and in, you know, tangling. And, and so, if you don't feel up to it, just... Tell them, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in the Bible, thank you, please get off my porch. You know, I'll pray for you. Don't engage. Do not engage. Um, if you feel up to it, and you have studied up on it, then you can try to point out their, some of their inconsistencies, their illogical, um, you know, things like that. And the... And the uh, quarterly had two books by Ron Rhodes, who I know is a very good teacher, about how to interact with the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. One is called Reasoning from the Scriptures with Jehovah's Witnesses and Reasoning from the Scriptures with Mormons. And they're both by Ron Rhodes. So if you want to study up so you can talk to these young elders on your porch, and those are, that's a book that you can look at. It's better if you don't feel up to it to just tell them to go away. Because you don't want to participate in their evil deeds. Because that's a sin. And then John finishes up, Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink. I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. So again, that could very easily be the sister of this lady. You know, you don't have to spiritualize that. Who's in a, a town? Who's in Johnstown? Which was probably Ephesus. So, that's the end of Second John. Anything else about that? So anyway, Lord, we pray. We thank you for this study. We pray that you would... We pray for the cultists and uh, they're on the wrong track. And uh, some of them are very sincere and think they're believing the true thing. So we pray that you would free some from the clutches of Satan, which is what they're involved in. And we thank you for the study. In Jesus' name, amen.